Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, from the Navy League's annual Sea Air Space Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. Our coverage here is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. Later in the podcast, our roundtable discusses key takeaways from this first day of this three-day show. Joining us now is United States Navy Rear Admiral Casey Moten, the Program Executive Officer for Unmanned and small combatants, one of the most interesting portfolios in the United States Navy. We recently spoke to him about the Littoral Combat Ship Program, the Constellation Class Frigate, as well as unmanned systems. But before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control, and General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology. Here's our conversation with Admiral Moten. And it is my honor today to welcome Rear Admiral Casey Moten, the Program Executive Officer for Unmanned and Small Combatants at the Naval Sea Systems Command, uh, doing some of the most exciting work in the United States Navy. Sir, great to have you back on the program. Hey, thank you, Vago. It's uh, great to be here today. I really appreciate your wanting to talk to me about the great work that we're doing at PEOUSC and in our support of the Navy. Um, it's just a great opportunity. So thank you for doing that. Really, really uh, appreciate it. And obviously, it's been a, a challenging uh, year with uh, COVID and everybody working remotely. But fortunately, you've been keeping your team safe and, and still managing to push the ball uh, up a steep hill. And I just want to tell our audience, we're going to have Admiral Moten back uh, in a little while for a deeper dive conversation. But this is our Navy, uh, Navy League skim across the wave tops. Um, each year for the last decade, the Navy has been saying this is the year for LCS. Uh, you know, but we've still faced challenges with mission modules being behind schedule. Uh, you know, Navy plans to retire six of the ships uh, earlier, I think people have expected. And yet it does seem like we're turning a corner. The Seventh Fleet Commander Bill Murs says uh, that these ships are going to be key, particularly in the Pacific. Uh, six of them are under deployment uh, on deployment now. So it's not just the old joke that, oh, you know, they're going to talk about Gabby Giffords, uh, which you and I have discussed in the past. Uh, earlier this year, there were two key reports. Uh, one uh, called for by the Chief of Naval Operations on the LCS strike team, the other one by the SURFOR, the Surface Force Commander, Admiral Kitchener, uh, looking at, um, you know, basically how to get these ships haze gray and underway, not to make a pun for, for our Navy League crowd. Have you turned the corner on this program, and if so, how? Okay, thanks for the opportunity to talk about LCS. It, it absolutely has been, uh, you know, an exciting last year or two as the ships have really deployed in numbers, you know, and I would say, you know, basically on the plan that we said that they would, um, you know, in recent years. And, you know, it's, it's exciting. I'm almost to the point now where it's hard for me to keep up with the number of ships that's are, that are deployed, right? And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but that's the way it should be, right? It shouldn't be this monumental event. Uh, you know, we should have the ships out there in numbers operating, and, and that's where we are. And you, you mentioned the, the comments, and I won't repeat them from the 7th Fleet Commander, from the Chief of Naval Operations, um, about the good work that the ships are doing out there. The key role, you know, especially in 7th Fleet, they are really um, fitting into an area that they were designed for in terms of their areas of operation and their mission, with the key addition that the Navy has, you know, uh, begun outfitting these ships, including our deployers, with the Naval Strike Missiles. So that is part of distributed maritime ops. LCS really brings a piece to the fight that cannot be ignored by a potential adversary. 
So, you know, I'm excited. We are all excited in the PEO because we have done a lot of work and people have worked very hard to get these ships out there and operating. And so, you know, it is truly exciting Be, beyond just, um, you know, the, just the ships performing their mission. The other thing that we're starting to see from our PEO perspective is some, you know, the fleets getting innovative in, in how they want to maintain the ships, how they want to operate the ships. We have uh, ships that are deployed in the Western Pacific right now uh, that have kind of a mix of the surface package and, and elements of the MCM package, which the fleet asked for. And so I personally, we handed the, the, the ship, the fleet ships with these mission bays and cranes and other capabilities. And so it's also quite exciting for me to see the fleet really start to demand for us um, how that they can use those ships. So um, it is truly a good time. And I, and I think, um, you know, the ships are really finding their place in the fleet. We, you know, we clearly, um, you know, had to make the Navy decision uh, with uh, the LCS decommissionings as part of the divestments. And, you know, and, and a lot's been said from Navy leaders about that. And, and you know, that's clearly a challenge for us in the, in the fiscal environments that we have. But, you know, I understand those broad Navy decisions. You know, I will just close that by no matter which way the Navy goes from POUOC, our job is, is clear, right? We have work to do to finish um, fielding the LCSs. We need to make the ships more operationally available. You mentioned strike team. Uh, this is an effort that is run out of our PEO, very focused on making reliability improvements to the class, on improving self-sufficiency so that our sailors and regional maintenance centers can better maintain the class without having to rely um, as much on contractors. Those are key elements under this task force LCS that Admiral Kitchener is leading that's looking at the, the overall employment of LCSs and how we can get more operationally available days with a higher level of, um, you know, the lethality and survivability and things that we're doing, including the NSM. And then obviously, you know, I can't talk about LCS without talking about, you know, job number one for us is still fielding the mine countermeasures package and the ASW package. And we are in a year of heavy test on MCM. We recently did a very significant uh, operational test period on our unmanned sweep system. Uh, we have our sonar in testing off of the USV, of course, which is the replacement for the prior RMV program. Um, we are we are headed towards this period of test. And I'm, you know, we're retiring risk every day. And I think, you know, I'm starting to get quite excited about uh, about how we're doing in the glide slope that we're on with MCM. And ASW, the same thing. We are proceeding through test and very focused on getting that ASW capability out, um, frankly, for both LCS and for frigate. So, um, you know, the ships are doing great things. My team is working on improving reliability, improving self-sufficiency, and fielding the MCM and ASW packages. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, a brief question on uh, L a follow up on LCS, and then uh, I want to get your sense on uh, frigate, obviously, because it is one of the most consequential warships uh, for the United States Navy. Very briefly, does having more of these ships in the fleet make them easier to support? And conversely, given that now that the Navy has decommissioned six of these ships, are many more going to follow? Because there is a sense that the Navy, with all due respect, sir, you know, the service has been trying to make it work, but there have been many people who, you know, I remember having interviewed people 15 years ago saying like, yeah, we're going to bring them into service and the sooner we get rid of them, the better. And it's beginning to sort of look a little bit like that. If you could quickly give us your, your sense on both of those. Yeah, sure. So on the numbers of, of ships in the fleet and the sustainment, I mean, we are still learning every day 
lessons learned um, as those ships operate. Uh, we, are, we are working on innovative ways to maintain them, expeditionary maintenance. Um, we have, uh, of course, uh, things like the maintenance execution teams that SURFOR is managing that are going uh, to adjust uh, the workload, so uh, the maintenance workload on the ship. So having the multiple ships out there is allowing us to uh, modify the sustainment strategy to better keep the ships at sea, as I mentioned earlier. And so to that extent, I think having the ships is helping us do that quicker, right? And to approach the best way to handle the ships. As far as the total number of ships in a fleet, I mean, clearly the overall force architecture is something that at, 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 at higher levels than just this PEO has to be balanced between current readiness, uh, future readiness, and all those kinds of things. I have tremendous respect for the hard decisions that have to be made at those higher levels of the Navy, you know, my, my job is to is to give them the trade space to have the vessels uh, be ready to operate, to get the reliability up, to solve the combining gear, which I know I didn't uh, have time to really expand on, but all those kinds of things, um, where they come out in the trade space and the overall Navy architecture and spending priorities is, I think, a question for, um, you know, future times and for the Navy writ large. But, you know, we're working hard to enable the ships to do what the Navy needs them to do. Um, if, uh, very quickly on the combining gear, I'm happy to give you a couple of seconds to try to bring the audience up to speed, right? Lockheed, uh, is under contract for repairs to the ships, uh, that, uh, have had problems with their rank combining, uh, gearboxes. Yeah. So clearly the combining gear, you know, uh, an unacceptable situation with those gears, having a design flaw on the class, um, you know, we want the ships, uh, uh, repair before we take a delivery, as, as we've said uh, quite publicly. Um, we are on the plan for the fix. The combining gear fix has actually completed the land-based testing of the portion, uh, a portion of the testing um, at the contractor's facility. And the revised and, you know, the fixed combining gear components are currently being installed on LCS 21, um, you know, up in the, up in the, the near the building yard and uh, we will be moving soon towards at-sea testing of that in the September timeframe. So very rigorous test program, um, you know, carefully designed to make sure that the new fix um, has the rigor that it needs. And at least the land-based portion of that has been successful. But, you know, going to the sea-based testing with all the rigor that that demands will be the end state there. But, uh, you know, we are absolutely executing the plan that we want to execute and on path towards uh, fixing that problem. Let me take you to the frigate. Uh, the Navy pledged to make the Constellation program a, a model, but there are already concerns with it. The goal was to buy an off-the-shelf uh, ship with minor modifications, uh, and for that ship to change how the Navy does business and how the Navy operates. Uh, instead, the Navy has been working hard to, to change the ship. Um, the hull form is different, superstructure is different, firefighting is different, propulsion train uh, modifications. Um, there is uh, work on the bow. Uh, that that's happened of, um, you know, taking it from the baseline, changing it, and then, and then uh, 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 going back. Um, and at this point, there are even some senior Navy leaders who are worrying whether or not we're making the same micromanaging mistakes that we made on previous classes uh, of, of, of ships. What's, where are we right now? Um, are we doing, uh, and the team doing as good of a job as you would like them to be doing to sort of manage the tech warrant holders and a myriad of changes that only drive up cost? And are you going to be able to deliver this ship for the target price of a billion dollars a piece, which was its big appeal, right? Let's do something innovative 
and field capability for less money quickly, are we polishing the cannonball at this point? The answer to that is no. So the frigate, you know, first of all, frigate with the award, we are um, proceeding you know, through what's called functional design, which is the initial step of the detailed design process. Um, you know, proceeding through that well, picking picking the specifics of the systems, getting to the very detailed level um, that's necessary, and then we, you know, we're moving and have accomplished quite a bit already. The, the three dimensional modeling that the shipbuilder needs to build the ship. Uh, the shipyard is doing their capital improvements. You know, all of that is proceeding well and headed towards our critical design review and production readiness review. And we're going to make sure, you know, that we start production when we're ready, right? The frigate risk reduction strategy has been multifaceted. And, you know, in my opinion, there is sometimes, you know, there is confusion out there, which, you know, I can help with uh, that the parent hall, the parent design strategy was the end-all be-all piece of the strategy. There were multiple pieces in the risk reduction, right? We did a requirements evaluation team where we worked hand-in-hand uh, -hand very closely with the operational Navy to determine their requirements. We received industry's feedback on that. We had early industry involvement, a conceptual design phase where we executed contracts with them uh, to look at both their ship designs and frankly, the specs uh, that we were going to use. Um, we used the use of, we required the use of a parent design, which I'll talk more about based on your comments, right? Um, we are uh, going instead of the, um, what were originally ship unique combat systems and C4I systems on classes such as LCS and DG 1000, we have shifted to uh, back to government furnished uh, combat systems, specifically with the Aegis uh, weapon system uh, and government furnace C4Is, you know, systems that we have fielded and continue to field on multiple ships, right? From the specs and the standards, people view it as, you know, if you, you say that some people are, are viewing it as, as gold plating, right? It's, it's absolutely not gold plating, right? In many cases, we have taken frigate back to the traditional, uh, to the more traditional specifications and standards that we have so much experience with on other ships in our fleet. So in areas of survivability, um, you know, habitability, uh, reliability in particular, right? We are requiring the ship to be what is more traditional for a U.S. Navy ship. And that is in direct response to some of the challenges that we've had on previous ship classes. But these are, you know, really mature specifications and standards. And I can't stress that enough. Um, all of those things. And I, I guess I would say that the last one is the use of non-developmental systems, right? So unlike where we've been with some of our prior classes, Frigate was on purpose um, designed to use mature systems, right? So all of those things come to be part of our risk reduction strategy. There's this, there's this perception that somehow we were going to take the parent ship and in this case, rip off the Italian labels, put on the English labels, and then we're done. That's not true, but a typical new ship design, you would be starting from, from zero, right? We're not starting from zero. We're starting from the use of a whole form um, that is already out there. It was scaled, which is, which is something that's fairly common for ship design. We're talking about a propulsion architecture that is currently being operated out there. And although we have changed some of the components to be domestically supplied, the architecture itself is still mature and operating today. Most new ship programs, you would not be in that state. Um, the arrangements of the ships, the types of systems of the ships are all mature and operating. 
Have we changed to domestic equipment? Yes. Do we make some changes for um, reliability standards that we think are more appropriate on how we want to operate the ships? Yes. But taking all that together, I still think you get a ship that is significantly ahead of where a clean sheet, uh, pan, uh, a new ship design would be in fielding. So you have to look at the parent design in this overall context of risk reduction on the program. People gravitate too much on that one specific piece. So I think we've done a great job balancing that. I think the design that we chose in the source selection does a great job balancing that. And I think that we are on track there. Now, it's a new ship design. I, I'm an experienced shipbuilder. Is there risk? Yes. Is there going to be integration risk? Yes. There always are for lead ships. Lead ships are always hard. And I'm sure that we will have difficult points in time as well. But we have really done everything we can to address some of these systematic issues that plagued us on some of the recent ship classes and specifically to address that. So, you know, I hope that helps. And again, I, the key is really to look at the entire risk reduction in context of all the things I, that I outlined. And I should uh, point out for audience, if they don't already know this, Fincontieri Marinette Marine uh, is is our is our uh, uh, sponsor. But this the commentary is coming from friends of mine uh, uh, in the in the Navy uh, rather than from the company. I guess one brief follow up question, and I do want to get to unmanned in a moment, sir. Is um, you know, I know you said that it is faster, but there are those who say, look, if you're going to make these kind of extensive changes, why didn't you just go with you know your design? You know, as you said you want this to be, the, the ship came with a certain approach, but you want that approach to be a U.S. Navy approach, right? And, and that's extensive because the U.S. Navy has its own way of doing things, uh, which, which has been a little bit of the tension and the challenge. How many, I mean, would it have been better to sort of spend 20% more time and you get exactly the ship in exactly the form in exactly the way you wanted instead of getting a ship and then modifying it very, very extensively to the point where it doesn't really share anything in common with the parent design, right? I mean, you guys have made hull, hull form changes and, and what have you, which, which is about as significant as you can get. Yeah, the answer, no. I think that we still did a good job for this class of ship where there are other ships um, you know, around the world that are in this same sort of size and mission range. You know, For us to take the aspects of that and combine it with the things that are important to us with, with the government combat system, with our traditional specifications and standards that we have in place for um, reliability, for survivability, for the other areas, which I will note, uh, we have not changed despite what you said about uh, perhaps some growth there uh, as the program. I still believe that that is the right mix for frigate and for this class. Right. And to compare that approach with the risk inherent in a completely new uh, clean sheet design, I still believe we're on the right approach. And uh, I think that we're gonna execute it effectively. And I think we'll, we'll prove that uh, a lot of the things that we did um, were really sound decisions made in the program to reduce risk uh, as we move into production. Um, let me uh, take you to unmanned uh, as, as much as I would love to dig in and a whole bunch of other uh, things because of, of the sheer breadth of programs that are under your watch. I want to go to unmanned systems. That's arguably uh, the most exciting of what is already a very exciting portfolio. Uh, your uh, colleague, Rear Admiral Lauren Selby, uh, the ONR, the chief of the uh, Office of Naval Research, has just unveiled uh, his 
unmanned technology plan. We had the CNO uh, unveil his uh, unmanned blueprint uh, just a couple of months ago. Uh, still some skepticism in Washington, though, as well as in the force about where the Navy is going. Walk us through the unmanned portfolio and your message uh, at Navy League about what that integrated future that the entire, really the flag word room is trying to work toward, right from the CNO all the way uh, through OpNav and NAVC. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I mean, the unmanned is extremely exciting. I mean, I, I believe strongly in what the CNO has said and what's in the unmanned campaign framework. You know, that the Navy is headed to ultimately a hybrid fleet of manned and unmanned platforms uh, acting together. And we certainly have platforms along the way. But uh, in some in some ways, I try to also think of that broader vision right beyond an individual platform. What does a hybrid fleet look like and how are we ready for that? And uh, the unmanned campaign framework that, uh, that you know, that the, that the CNO uh, published, that, you know, and that the actually Department of the Navy published with the Marine Corps, uh, to me has been quite important uh, in laying the strategy for the Navy, how we're going to operate, uh, how we're going to sustain, how we're going to figure all those things out as we move forward. Um, and then, you know, also on the acquisition side, you know, the, the things in there about how we're going to take an approach where um, we separate the platform specifics from the capabilities. We solve capabilities once in scale, whether that's autonomy systems, whether it's, um, uh, you know, for UUVs, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, battery and power and endurance, or if it's whole mechanical, whole uh, mechanical and electrical systems for uh, the surface ships, um, all those types of things we're going to solve once and scale and be able to apply them to multiple platforms. So I truly believe that that's the right approach, that the, that the campaign framework lays out that strategy very well. Um, it's, it's, it's got the foundation of the science and technology that ONR is doing that you mentioned, uh, Admiral Selby's strategy, and that's, that's extremely important. Um, where we are in the PEO is enabling that uh, strategy to happen. So we are doing our prototype testing right now, which is extremely important. We have our two overlord vessels out there now with two more on the way, uh, two vessels of the Sea Hunter type variety uh, in MUSV under contract on the surface side. And then on the undersea side, um, you know, our efforts with extra large UUV under contract with Boeing, uh, large diameter UUV where we're headed into uh, the next phase of our prototyping, you know, all those types of things are coming together at the platform level. Uh, and that's very important. Um, and that will help us figure out technical issues. It'll help us do concept of operations. Uh, the prototypes are out there now being operated by the surface development squadron and the UUV squadron. And so the fleet is getting more familiar. I think that the framework lays it out um, really well. Where I want to focus is from the PEO side on that capabilities piece. You know, we, are take, we, you know, we have talked maybe too much about a very prototype specific thing in the past, which has caused uh, you know, some of the conversation and discussion. We are executing a rigorous system engineering framework. You know, we are looking at each piece, what it takes to have a whole mechanical and electrical system that's reliable with low maintenance, um, tested both at sea and ashore uh, as we want to do and as the statute requires now. Um, we are, you know, our autonomous C4I systems that are compatible and part of uh, overmatch in the Navy's vision for the naval operational architecture, uh, the combat systems on the ships, depending on their mission, the autonomy is the next step. Um, and, and all the things that go with that. And then additionally, the control systems, the common control system that we're gonna have to operate. 
We are doing some innovative things with how we're going to develop autonomy and integrate autonomy with industry. We are working with industry very closely. Um, so those aspects of the plan, we are going to make sure are mature enough to proceed um, along with our platform efforts. We're having very uh, close conversations with Congress and others on that plan. You know, I appreciate that Congress has had um, some concerns and I completely understand that. You know, what I will stress is that we have regular conversation between uh, the defense committees and us on those plans. It's been a lot of great feedback and I, and I think we've made some changes to our plan uh, going forward, you know, some of which frankly won't be out there until the 23 budget timeframe is released um, to proceed. But I, you know, all those things together, I think whether it's the, pl the platform prototyping or the, uh, the capabilities piece, the solve once in scale that the unmanned campaign framework talks about uh, really have us on a good path uh, to achieve not just fielding the individual platforms, but again, what the CNO has articulated as the hybrid fleet of manned unmanned. Just to follow up on uh, LCS, sir, I mean, is there a long range future for the LCS in the United States Navy, or is this going to be seen as a transitional design and, and one that we sort of sell to our allies and partners and try to harvest this experience in, in some capacity to improve our game for the future? Yeah, well, again, how LCS and how small combatants in general fit in with the Navy's uh, force architecture is a, is a question that really is rightfully answered at, um, at the OPNAV levels, at the CNO levels, in terms of our overall posture. Um, and you know, all of that being weighed against the hard choices that have to be made at the Navy, at the department and higher levels regarding our resources and how best to field a fleet that's gonna be able to do the Navy's mission. And I completely get that. And so LCS's specific role in there um, will be part of those discussions and you know, is really not mine directly to answer. Uh, I'm working right. to enable those decisions. Um, the other interesting thing you did talk about was what have we learned from LCS? And so regardless, you know, I will say that there are tremendous lessons from LCS that fed into risk reduction for the frigate uh, that are feeding into how we handle payloads and modular systems for unmanned platforms that are, you know, the training that we're doing of the ship's crews on LCS is revolutionary and the Navy is adopting that. So, um, you know, beyond LCS's specific future, there has been a lot of lessons learned and things that we have gotten out of that that I think are gonna make us a better Navy and certainly a better PEO as well. Um, and uh, 30 more seconds, uh, you know, you, you talked about unmanned in the link. We, we can't help but mention uh, Representative Elaine Luria, a retired United States Navy commander who represents uh, the Tidewater on the Senate Arms, uh, excuse me, on the House Armed Services Committee. And one of the challenges she's talked about is, you know, look, how do you integrate uninhabited ships with weapons on them, right? I mean, she makes the point that if you were on a destroyer, the weapons are tightly controlled and, and you've got a couple of hundred sailors on the ship that the weapons are on. Now you're talking about weapons that are beyond range. Do you feel that some of these challenges and questions uh, are, are technically answerable uh, for, for members like her and others who, uh, and even those in the fleet who ask, hey, how the heck are we going to pull this off? Uh, at the end of the day. Do you think that there's a good sort of engineering operational solution to that problem? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the it, it all goes back to the requirements of the ship and the importance of LUSV in particular as the adjunct magazine and how we're going to field that. As to how it's going to work, you know, I would remind uh, the listeners 
that remote engagement and the ability of the Aegis system and our future integrated combat system to be able to share fire control data, you know, any weapon, any shooter, that is the flock, that is uh, the capability that Aegis is already bringing um, and LUSV could have that same capability. And I would stress that it is human in the loop just as it is today. There's the only difference between um, the way we do it today is where the human specifically sits. But in terms of how the combat system is gonna operate, um, we're already doing it. Now, the, you know, for LUSV and the rest of the fleet specifically, uh, the work that Overmatch is doing is extremely important to this, right? Having uh, connected communications, connecting the sensors and the shooters, right? That is critical to the operation of unmanned. Um, if that, you know, in an adjunct magazine, it's one capacity. If you're going to push an unmanned platform out further away, uh, not necessarily under the protection because it's a better risk proposition in an operational fight to push that unmanned ship, then Absolutely. You're going to be ready. You're going to need to be able to possibly take some more attrition and have all the things that you need to do in terms of safety, anti-tamper, um, anti-boarding, those kinds of things. But is there a risk? Yes. But the, but that's part of what I think unmanned is ultimately going to be able to bring is to give the fleet the opportunity to put those platforms where they don't want to put manned vessels. And I, I think that's part of the con-op. And I think that the technology supported by what we're doing and what Overmatch is doing is the right path to feel that capability. Sir, honor and pleasure having you on. Always enjoyed the conversation very, very much. I wish we could push this out for another half an hour. Uh, look forward to having you back on again after Navy League so we can have a deeper dive conversation. You've been very generous with your time. Really, really appreciate it and hope you have a great Navy League. All right, thanks, Vago. I uh, a great Navy, uh, uh, thanks to the Navy League for CR Space and I hope uh, it's a great event and I'm sure it will be. I, I enjoyed the conversation and glad to update uh, your listeners and uh, very excited about the work we're doing here at POUSC. It, it very much is uh, exciting and we can't wait to get into the field to chronicle it in greater detail. Thanks again. Thank you, Vago. And joining us now for our roundtable discussion on this first day of a three-day Navy League slog are our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, uh, two gentlemen who are at the uh, join us on a weekly basis uh, for the Cavus Ships uh, podcast that discusses the latest and greatest in naval affairs uh, every week to help clear through the fog for those of you who are devotees of the show and a weekly squawk. Uh, Chris and Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Vago, for having us. Always good to see everybody at the show, Vago, even you. It's great. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, and you gentlemen are looking uh, looking absolutely lovely. Uh, fortunately, we're not doing any video this year. Uh, all right. So key takeaways. Uh, we heard uh, from the three service chiefs, obviously from the chief of naval operations, Mike Gilday, uh, from the commandant of the United States uh, Marine Corps, uh, General David Berger, as well as the commandant of the United States Coast Guard, Carl Schultz. Surveillance why don't you uh, start us off? I've got to go with last names. Otherwise, it's going to be the C-squared uh, routine going on here. Chris, uh, give us your takeaways on the message you heard from the CNO from and from the two commandants. First, the, the two commandants, I mean, they were very much in line with what they have talked about and what they've laid out in previous uh, online events as well as in their writing. Uh, Berger is in, is, Commandant Berger is working hard to transform the Marine Corps, going after some traditional Marine uh, capabilities that he feels like would be better uh, that that those 
resources would be better used in, in other areas. Uh, the Commandant of the Coast Guard is basically saying, hey, give me some capabilities because I, I've got things both at home and away that I need to do in support of national security and I need more, whether it's ships, whether it's people, whether it's, it's technology. Uh, the CNO, I mean, he, he kind of followed what he has said be, before. I mean, he, he gives a thoughtful explanation of where the service is right now but doesn't really connect it to a long-term vision. I would say the one thing that came out of it that I heard you know, about quite a bit on the floor, um, and there were a number of uh, media reports on it, was his admonishing of industry uh, over um, their lobbying of Congress for, you could say, legacy systems, or as he said, for things that we don't really need. The example he used is, is he said, hey, it's not helpful to lobby Congress for aircraft that we don't need, meaning we didn't put them in the budget, so why are you going up on the hill and asking them to put that in so and, and there he's talking about the f-18s and p-8s and, and the stuff that was cut out of the budget right i mean his specific example yes but i mean I, he, he kind of alluded to all sorts of legacy te- technology and so that i think left people with a little bit of a, a sour taste in their mouth um chris uh, you've heard a couple of these speeches uh, as well over the years we both have what were your takeaways not just from the tri-service panel but also what you're picking up on the floor from uh, attendees i think in general people weren't, weren't i'm sorry to say weren't in Impressed with the CNO speech, uh, they've heard a lot of it before. Uh, the divest to invest theme that is, is is more and more becoming the heart of certainly the current move, certainly strategy, uh, does not seem to be meeting with a lot of support. Uh, obviously, people are pushing back on it, and he's pushing back on people are pushing back. Um, that's that that that's that's pretty clear, don't you think? Um, and uh, this is in the wake. I mean, we've talked about this uh, a, a lot, but is uh, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff last week, John Hyten, uh, discussing uh, the the challenge and and why the Pentagon has to change its capabilities in the wake of uh, a war game last October. So, I mean, that I mean, that's a great point. I mean, Hyten's comments actually resonated a lot more than the three uh, than the three service chiefs. And I don't know if it's because, as Chris said, it's been kind of the same thing that they delivered throughout the pandemic on these online events. Uh, The CNO spoke last week or two weeks ago when he did the the prequel to uh, to Sierra and Space. But certainly the budget uh, crunch and um, Hyten's concern that he raised seemed to be on the minds of the folks on the floor. Now, I'll say, as you look at the things that they brought with them, uh, they're a little bit behind where Heighton is asking them to go. So perhaps that will be something that comes out of this is that um, they'll realize, okay, hey, we, we need to kind of, this is about reconnecting. And then from a messaging standpoint and from a product standpoint, we need to go back and retool and do the work that Heighton has asked us to do. Um, but, you know, and in all candor, right? I mean, these first, the United States regularly gets trashed in war games. That's the whole point of them is the test capability. And the second thing is, none of the things that he discussed should be news to anybody because strategists have been talking about communications being targeted, the role of cyber, massing of forces, vulnerabilities to precision fires. Um, Chris, I mean, what are some of the other messages and themes you've been picking up in the conversations you've had here uh, on this first day? Well, I think from from ministry's point of view, people are trying to reassure people that uh, they've stayed in business throughout the pandemic. Um, they've talked about how many ships are being delivered, how many people are working, um, how production has, while, while there was a dip in uh, the early days of the shutdown, has rebounded, and they've kept on producing. So a lot of it is, a lot of themes are, you know, while you were at home, we were doing this. Right. And, and you're hearing a lot of that. 
Um, and uh, everybody is highlighting how, despite the challenges they were having, they were continuing to deliver, uh, albeit uh, with some delays. We heard from the Huntington Ingalls uh, leadership on um, how the company focused to try to deliver. And of course, everybody should be tuning into our interview with Mike Petters. Uh, uh, Later Three, two, one, and everybody ought to tune in for our interview with Mike Petters, uh, the uh, president and CEO of Huntington Ingalls, uh, later in the week. Um, Chris, let me, t- uh, Cavus, let me take you to the question of LCS. You know, Casey Moten, Admiral Moten, joined us at the top of this program, uh, and six of the ships are underway, right? And every year, the Navy has said this year will be the year of LCS, and it looks like it is developing into the year of LCS. Yeah. But this is against the backdrop of the decommissioning of uh, the Independence very quietly uh, last week. Talk to us about how you think this program is making uh, progress because you, me, as well as Cervello have been a little bit critical about uh, the, the path that this program has been on. I mean, the, you know, the irony is that after all these years, and we're talking 18 yeah. or so years, and it's been an official program of record, um, it's really finally kicking in. They are deploying in numbers. They are, de- they are still being completed. They're being launched. They're being built. Construction continues to begin. Uh, the construction on the last one right now is not even yet to be begun yet, but it will in a few months. Um, there's a lot of things happening. Yes, they are finally moving out, and it's ironic that okay, this is the point where uh, they are decommissioning ships that have been in service for you know unbelievably short periods of time. The Independence was only 11 and a half years. Never actually did a deployment. Spent most of her time in R and D. Um, the, and, well, which, which is not bad if it's going to deliver capability to the fleet, right? Right. Necessarily. But, but even then, those systems, which were the mine systems, are still not deployed. Right. They're no, not, they're neither is the ASW up. system. So there's there's a lot of things. And, and, and even the successes, they're sort of afraid to talk about. They're not talking about uh, the over-the-horizon missile now, the longbow missile, which apparently works and it's being installed. You hear almost nothing about that. They talk about NSM, although the Navy is not buying NSMs in numbers to back up what back up their rhetoric. On the plus side, um, the Minneapolis-St. Paul, which is the first LCS up at uh, Marinette that was held for delivery pending a fix to the combining gear, uh, they are installing that fix right now. They will begin sea trials in September. Um, there are there's a very robust period on that. They're very hopeful about that. They, as soon as they finish the install on the Minneapolis-St. Paul, they'll uh, do the same thing on the next ship, Cooperstown. Um, and they'll also do trials this fall, and they're hoping to get both of them approved, uh, successful trials, take delivery of the ships, and leave the Great Lakes to, to head to the Atlantic uh, before the annual Great Lakes shutdown. So that's they're they're hopeful right now, and, and, and yet in the background we're throwing them away. And of course, we've all heard budget discussions of much higher numbers of LCSs being decommissioned. Um, Cervello, uh, what are some of the things that, uh, very briefly from both of you, what are some of the things you guys uh, are going to be listening for over the next couple of days here? Over the next few days, I'd like to hear more from um, the SISCOMs, 
they are doing a very good job. I mean, we, you know, we're, we tend to use these roundtables to be critical, but I, I think the syscoms have done a good job of bringing PEOs here to answer questions. The briefs are sort of vanilla, but I mean, they've left a good amount of questions or a good amount of time at the end to ask questions. Reporters and, and navalists have, have asked hard questions on the uh, nav sea and on the nav air side. So I want to hear more about that. I do want to go back to what Chris said about LCS. I do think that this is the year of LCS, as you said, Vago, but if you listen to Admiral Moten just before we started this roundtable, I very much believe that conditions are being set to walk away from LCS. Uh, thematically, they are saying they are laying the track for this was not a wasted program. We've learned all these lessons. We're going to incorporate those lessons into uh, Constellation. They think that they can sell these ships to, uh, you know, as they've done with other ships to some of our uh, allies and partners. So I think this is the year that they make a hard decision on whether or not they're going to double down, triple down, quadruple down, or, or to walk away. So um, I'm not only do I want to hear updates on other programs, I want to keep I want to keep my ear out and see if there's more there on on LCS. Camus? Yeah, I agree. The, I mean, the, a lot of the LCS story, in ter- at least in terms of the Freedom class, the LCS one class from Lockheed Martin. Um, maybe maybe the thing to start looking at now is this this provides opportunity for industry to support these ships in foreign hands. There's a lot to be done there, and you start looking at the the FFG7 Oliver Hazard Perry class frigates, which uh, the, the early ships of that class had a short haul, and then after production, right. the ship were delivered. They changed helicopters as a bigger helicopter, needed a slightly, slightly bigger flight deck and bigger hangar, and the Navy didn't want to change the ships, so they decommissioned them. Ironically, most of those ships that were decommissioned early and thrown away by the U.S. Navy after 10 to 12 to 15 years are still serving, quite active and under foreign flags, supported by U.S. industry, by the way. And all of the frigates that the Navy kept are gone, decommissioned, sunk, or waiting for scrap. Whereas uh, FIG 7s all around on the world are haze gray underway and getting uh, the job done. Short hauls. Short short hauls, correct. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Look forward to having you guys uh, back on uh, as we uh, continue to cover this great show. Thanks very much. Thanks, Vago. Anytime, Vago.